go on speaker? Why am I going on speaker? Why would I go on speaker? Okay, but going on speaker would screw things up otherwise, but I will go on CUC. Yeah, we're just going to do oh. this to sync up, because this is our syncing up moment. Okay, so you were on speakerphone. Alright, Matt and Ethan syncing up. Okay. Cool. All right, so Ethan, uh, you and I have a podcast now. Yeah, Matt, we do. <laughs> uh, who are we and why are we doing a fucking podcast? <laughs> I'm Ethan. I'm a sports journalist, writer, guy who's at The Athletic, formerly of ESPN. And Matt, Matt is a comedy guy, formerly of The Onion, funnier die. <laughs> and now we talk as Matt and Ethan about technology and your brain. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, we talk about your brain. <laughs> uh, no, well, here, like I was at lunch today and uh, I was like talking about what a hellscape Instagram is. Uh, with my with some friends and like the waitress like came over and was like nodding and we were like we're talking about Instagram and she's like yeah I know I fucking hate it why what are we doing why can't we like stop all this and we just kind of like ranted for a while and she's like we need you know someone needs to do something I, and I feel like there's a lot of people who feel this way about like where media is at where tech is at where like these big behemoth companies have taken us and I feel like oddly me doing like comedy for the last 10 years and you doing sports writing for the last 10 years, our, both of our careers started on the internet. We're very much products of the internet. I don't know. I just feel like th there's been a lot of interesting conversations and observations that we've like have in our, and, and, and I feel like because we both are having them at the same time, I've always been impressed by how like our two lives have tracked similarly, even though we're in different, you know, very different fields. Mm. I feel like there's like a lot in common and I feel like when we talk, it makes me feel like, oh, I'm not alone in feeling these things. And it, like, yeah. I don't know, it, it helps us like name the beast here, you know? Yeah, I like that. I just don't know how we can make it into an intro that sounds professional and is quick I and think, gets us into the conversation. I think we already did. Oh! <laughs> so uh, we've, we've got a good conversation here. This first one is about like Facebook, as they probably all Oh, are. why? Oh, I know what the thing is. On this episode, we talk about whether or not our industries, respectively, are still producing young stars and whether they can still get up the ladder. Also, oh, yeah. I tell a ridiculous story about a time I talked to Tucker Carlson nearly a decade ago over the phone. And, well, I can't say any more. You have to keep listening. Yeah, you won't believe what Tucker Carlson said to Ethan Strauss. Act one, Tucker Carlson called Joan Walsh a So for one, I did want to mention, I mean, I do think that like uh, this podcast, you know, I think we're still going to be figuring it out. I think that like there's a very likely chance that this first episode is going to get like pulled that or like won't get put up for like two weeks or something. Mm. <laughs> but it won't even be on SoundCloud. No, it'll be on SoundCloud. Everything will be on SoundCloud. Uh, but, uh, it just, I, yeah, I forgot about the idea. I don't know. I think the, our attitude towards this podcast needs to continue being what it is uh -huh. be because I think that like how the, the only way that this podcast will like reach what we want it to be is if it's just you and I having conversations 
and mm. us like editing those into like the most interesting parts and then putting mm. that out. And yeah, I agree. And I think that like it'll take us a little while to like get that groove and to figure that out. But I think that like once we get it, it'll be really one. It'll be like easier on us, uh, and because we'll be able to just kind of like it'll just be like we'll know it'll be easier for us to figure out the things that we want to talk about because they're the things well, we're just incentivized mm. correctly. You know what I mean? It's mm. just like a good conversation is what we're incentivized to do. Oh, okay. So so I had a, a thought by the way. Okay, so. You mentioned that David Brooks had written a, a, a shitty column or, or, or some such about a week or so ago, right, uh, on social media call-out culture. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And so I read that column. I was curious about it because, you know, my contrarian instincts are – because I know that David Brooks is very uncool and he's very – he's a bad and if you're cool, you're <laughs> so supposed you're, to hate so him. So you're like, ooh, I can't wait to find the things I love in this, this <laughs> Well, no, I, I hear the David problem Brooks. is – the problem is I don't like David Brooks, uh, <laughs> David Brooks's columns generally. I just don't think they're very good. But and so this I'm is not... the infinite struggle uh, of Ethan's uh, like a current opinion versus the contrarian opinion he'd like to be able to have. I just because I because here's what I know. I know that David Brooks could write um, an incredible column and people wouldn't want to share it because his name is David Brooks, right? And so I want to check it out for myself. I want to see is it actually bad? Is it right. actually something? And I found the column interesting, though a little bit lazy. He he just wrote a podcast on, based on a was it an, an invisible invisibilia? Is is that the podcast? Yeah, yeah, I think it was invisibilia. For, yeah. for, like like an invisibilia podcast from months ago, right? Yeah, um, I imagine. I don't know. I, I I hadn't heard it, but I don't think invisibilia has updated which, which you, since like last spring or something. <laughs> Yeah, but it's. It, it, I guess you can do that when you have a column. You can just go, okay, so I was listening to this podcast from a few months ago. Here's my review of that yes, podcast. Yes, and you know what? And we shouldn't and we shouldn't besmirch that because that is what we want to incentivize is people thinking about things for a long time, yeah, not just sure. jumping on the moment. So, Dave, I, so we shouldn't make fun. Well, I, I think the approach might have been a little bit lazy. Um, I did find what he was describing uh, a little bit terrifying, if that that's what was on the podcast. I have not listened to the podcast. I did find it a little terrifying of you disavow your best friend because he's accused, and then you're accused and you're disavowed. Sure. This is the process that was described on the podcast. I think it was in the punk – it was the punk rock scene of what city? Uh, I, I can't remember. Was yeah. it, a, it was like a, a southern city, uh, I, I think, but – um, you know, you you you're dis you you have got to disavow your friend, not your friend anymore. Um, and it just goes through this process and the cycle. And Brooks was saying that the podcast was framing it as part of progress, and he was disagreeing with that. But that that's not the interesting part to me. The interesting part, um, when I was shaving today, I was thinking about it was. Is this just how friendships are now for a younger cohort, Matt? Are we unusual in that if the mob turned on you, I would speak up and go, that's my friend. Because we have a friendship that predates these technologies that I think is founded and skirted in something real. Or are the relationships of younger people so mediated by technology and um, and, and, and this particular social media kind of technology that – it's not real enough for them to even stand athwart the uh, the the mob. I th- that that was the thought that entered my mind. Is that too well, crazy a thought? No, no. I I think about this a lot too. Of like, well, when somebody does get like me tooed or somebody does like something or says something offensive in the media or something like that, uh, and then their friends are like, I I would actually like even if everybody is turning against you. 
I think that like your friends should still stick by you. And I think yeah. that like I don't but I, I mean and I mean that is like that's what society should want. It's very tribal and they might be wrong for doing that, but we need an element of that or we have no bonds. <laughs> yeah, right. But also like yeah. but like you don't want I mean, even the worst people, like you don't if you know them personally and are close to them, the only thing that is gonna change those people you know, is those close relationships. And like, that can be a hard conversation. That's a great point. Or it could even be a conversation that then leads to you needing to take a step away from that friendship. But I think like having a friendship means that like, there is a loyalty to a person above like society, you know, that's like, that's closer. And I think like, if somebody does something wrong, wrong, you want the people around them to be there to help them through that process so that they come out the other side, being a better person for all of society. That that's a great point. And, and I would agree with that. And I think that your friendships are even more important now. We're a more secular society than, than before. Um, we, we need that. And I, but but do you think that the thesis is wrong? I mean, this is a terrifying dystopian thesis that, that well, I think it's very yeah to be pledging your loyalty to like the social media ecosystem versus yeah. you're pledging your loyalty to friendships. Yeah, I think that's very scary. Yeah, I, I find that terrifying. And um, I, I just wonder if I'm if I'm wrong to be concerned that for the younger cohort. Uh, relationships are so mediated through these technologies that they are a little bit more shallow and more disavowable. I guess that's another question. Are the friendships more shallow and so they're easier to be uh, discarded or is the technological uh, incentives, are those just so powerful or is it both? I think that this is such a complicated idea that I like I do think we're only going to scratch the surface of it but I think it's a mm. ve- I think it's one of the more profound uh, aspects of this because we've I think that like there is the the tech utopian viewpoint of this which is that we should be stronger as a colony and as a community which is what the mm. internet allows us to do essentially allowing us to be like an insect community like ants yep. all of us thinking with the same mind like directives from above or whatever and that pledging ourselves to that whole is much better than pledging ourselves to like these smaller units but the problem yeah. and like that is the like you like the utopian idea of like making human civilization one mind and one great thing greater than the sum of its parts but i think in practicality what it because these technological pipes are currently mediated by massive corporations really what you're doing is pledging yourself to those corporations and to how they how they get spikes in traffic and spikes in ad revenue based yeah. on whether or not you shame somebody so i think the incentive Incentives are not aligned. The incentives of friendship are so good and strong of like, you know, those are like pure good human things. And the incentives of doing well on social media are so corrupt and bad that there I don't to me, I don't actually think that that's the conversation we're having when we're saying, Mm. should you shame your friend on social media or should you stand by them? I think that we're actually having a conversation of should you stand by your friend or should you stand by the company that you work for for free? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great way to frame it, and it is, it is an incentive problem. I, I think the other interesting thing I was thinking about this morning, driving to, um, driving Allie to work, driving my wife to work, uh, we were talking about her brother, and how her brother, 
so he had an old girlfriend who made a Facebook account for him that maybe lasted a month that he never used, and he doesn't use any of the social media platforms, and how that is a direct tell. I mean, I immediately said, he's not narcissistic at all, and she just left. No, not at all. That <laughs> if you're not using these platforms, it speaks to, it's a quick and dirty measure of your lack of narcissism. I, that you know, yeah. you effectively know that people, if people aren't using these things, they're not narcissists. It's That's that's kind of amazing to me. Yeah, well, but also, but this is like a whole section of people. Like, I was thinking about like, oh man, I haven't been talking publicly about how much I love this new Vernon Chapman show on Adult Swim. That mm. I've been like the shivering truth that I've been like doling out to myself like in, in like small pieces because I like it's like so precious because it's so good mm. and I'm like oh but if I don't talk about it like on social media then you know like uh, it's not going to get the boost that it wants or something like that and then it occurred to me like the people who like this show I want to believe are like the greatest among us because we can see that it's such a good show yeah, and the greatest but, but, among but, but us would one... not be fucking on social media talking about this show just like well, the creators of it are not. Yeah, I mean that one's a hard one because that does feel like the good internet in a way. Because it does, but, I feel but it's the, it's the I feel good the when sharer. I'm the people, yeah, the only just, people sharing things, mm. the only people who are sharing things online are narcissists. So we're only going to get mm. media for narcissists, <laughs> for narcissists by narcissists. It's yes. a new fubu, yeah. but for personality disorder, I, I, I yeah. it's hard. Finbun. 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 It's hard because I feel it's like finbun. that's the good internet in a way. I, I feel good when I'm saying to people on, uh, on, on social media, hey, I really like uh, using the sous vide. This is my favorite recipe. Maybe I, I felt good. I was at a Warriors game, and uh, afterwards, one of the guys who uh, he it's even hard to explain what he does. He, he works for the team in a kind of – a, a capacity that's not quite security, but is kind of just keeping things moving. You know, there are a bunch of little jobs behind the scenes. And he came up to me and he said that his wife tried out a recipe, a marinade for steak that I had, that I had tweeted about and loved it. And it was great, and they had a great meal. That felt fantastic. <laughs> and that's something that, by the way, that's something you wouldn't get from just sharing an outraged political opinion. That felt good that I had found a marinade, a carne asada marinade that worked for me, and I had shared it, and it, it, it had helped create a good meal for some people. It does feel like the good internet when you share things that are good that you want other people to interface with. I do. I, I agree with that as well. I mean, obviously, like, there's, like, extremes in this, and I think that there are good things about sharing and recommending, but I think, and I think that there are bad things about only sharers being the ones who dictate things. But I think that I, I don't know. It just feels like the incentives aren't dialed correctly for yes. all this stuff. Yeah, and it just and shouldn't be the only way, you know, that things get out is if a narcissist likes it. If a narcissist likes it, if it, it is that that it, it that's fascinating because. I haven't really thought about the issue as this. We've talked about it. There's been a little bit of cultural criticism about the bubble. And a lot of what's happening is that people in the bubble have a disproportionate uh, amount of positions in the commanding heights of culture. That's what conservatives would say. And, you know, the people at The New Yorker or at these other publications, they'll like things that the broader public doesn't really like because of their ideological predispositions, whether it's Nanette or I can't even think of what the other examples might be off the top of my head, but you know what I'm talking about. This is a different kind of critique that the issue isn't so much 
that they're in this liberal cultural bubble. It's that they're narcissists, and that's a very particular kind of personality that might not be widely shared. I, I, I love that critique. Yeah. I, I would love to – here's what I love. Like what, what TV shows really appeal to narcissists is, is, is then the question that follows. I mean, I think – I guess probably a lot of the ones that are on the air. Well, let me, but do you remember it felt like for a long time that there was a lot of media – or there's a lot of chatter about introverts – do you remember that? Mm, well, that was one of those things that my, my read on it was nobody want everybody wanted to pretend that they were introverts even if they were extroverts. Was, yeah, was yeah, totally. Like. But I but I feel like that actually like the to me that what was annoying was that like uh, yeah, everybody was claiming they were an introvert, even if they were like not. But like it, it was like a nice incentive. It was like to to hold up introverts as like still a valuable and good people and a good mm. personality trait in a way. I mean, can you imagine a society in which everyone's trying to out introvert each other? <laughs> like that I mean, is a hard. much better society. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess. I mean, there are fewer relatives at weddings who are pulling you under the dance floor against your will and, and, and trying to be too gregarious. <laughs> I guess, but like, but I mean, like, I, I, like a good society has a mix of people where there are yeah. like gregarious, like oh, narcissists, is, and there's also thank like you. It, th- thoughtful introverts, and like one is pulling the, you know, and they're both pulling each other in those directions. The introverts are making the narcissists, you know, think a little bit more, and the narcissists are like getting the introverts out and having a party a little bit more. Like, like that's a I, good I, fucking friendship in society. I, I f- often have that, and you might be able, you you might cr- criticize it as a, a trite yin yang philosophy, but I I feel that way on a lot of things. I feel, guess what? Society needs some conservative people, and it needs some liberal people, and we need uh, some sort of technology that mediates discussions and disputes in a way that is productive, where where the two sides are more so learning from each other than engaging in an eliminationist style of rhetoric. <laughs> um, you know, I, but you're you're going to have you're going to have a mix. You need some people who are like this, and you need some people who are like that. That, that that's not the craziest idea. I think it's a fairly sensible idea, but it's one that I don't I don't see discussed too often. It's one that like rather than having that conversation and like thinking of like the rewarding aspect aspects of it instead we're just like playing with this loose tooth of like yeah. fighting each other oh. over these differences rather than I, oh, like, I'm reminded experiencing of, them. I, I, I'm reminded of um, you remember we watched this clip it was Frank Luntz talking to voters in the run up to the Beto Cruz election yeah and uh it, it, and, and Luntz was asking them about their political opinions it was a fairly dramatic uh, little segment of, of, of research but watching it I came away f- with the conclusion eventually that often what's happening it's not bad versus good. It's just different kinds of political messaging appeals to different kinds of personalities. And society is going to have a collection of different personalities. And uh, there was a guy, he might have been an engineer, something like that. He worked on airplanes. And he his, his view on immigration was... Look, they broke the law. You're here illegally. This is, you know, we we have to follow the law. We need laws. I mean, it makes sense if you're an engineering type of person, perhaps, that you would be just very kind of cut and dried. The rules are the rules because maybe at your job, the rules need to be the rules. And if they're not, then things go haywire. And you also might not be the highest empathy person. And then there was a there was a Beto supporter who was saying, look, 
she she was saying basically, look, if I was the mother of one of these kids, I would do anything for my children and I would bring them across the border, you know, regardless of what the rules were because it gave them a better life. Can't you see that? She's also correct, but she's a different kind of person with whatever occupation she had. There's there's more empathy and she's also correct. And I, I in a way, looking at the two of them, I, I didn't think that either were entirely wrong, and it was nice to actually see them in the same room talking about these things, <laughs> as opposed to just trying to destroy the entire perspective and worldview of the other well, they online, both started, which is what usually they happens. Both, after this, they both pulled out their iPhones and started filming each other and screaming at each other, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most dystopian. That happens in my neighborhood. That happens in Berkeley where there are these protests between right-wing and left-wing people, and they're just filming each other the whole time while yelling at each other. It's well, completely terrifying. Well, I think this is something that people who make these tech platforms don't realize, is that when you make a tech platform, you are putting yourself into it. You are creating your personality and your ideas in a like literally a machine, a machine to make more of that in a lot of ways. And I think that what we're seeing is that these platforms aren't for all people. The platforms themselves are for specific kinds of people. And we let one mm. when we let one platform dominate, we're really letting one type of person dominate. Like, do you want to be ruled only by people that do well on Instagram? Then you're gonna be no. ruled by only like hot narcissists who make good looking food. You're not gonna <laughs> well, be- this is- <laughs> By the way, the, the the fire documentaries are so funny in that revenge of the nerds uh, yeah. way where I think one of the reasons why that was so resonant as an event um, and to anybody who does, everybody knows about that one, right? That there, there, there was this concert for hot influencers. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Everybody's, been watch, everybody's watched all five fire documentaries. Yeah, people love it. But I, I think the, the, but I think it, it, it scratches that particular itch because there is this sense of these are our unelected rulers. Yeah. <laughs> These hot narcissists, yeah. <laughs> Kylie Jenner and whatnot. These are the people running society in their own bizarre way, and we didn't. None of us really asked for this. And so no, it's but funny really, to they're just like the person. highest paid contributors to a magazine. Like that's how mm. we should be seeing these things. Like Twitter is a magazine that we all write for for free, and it's like kind of like a shitty like rag literary tabloid. And Instagram is like a fashion and food magazine that everybody is working for for free. And the reason why people get mad at each other on these platforms is because they're like well hey we, you don't you're not working for the same magazine that I'm working for they're they're mm. mad that like this other person got something published in the same magazine that they did and like how wh- how come that I can put my great woke ideas up on in the magazine but also the nazi can that doesn't make any mm. sense and it's like well yeah because this platform is not it's just it's intractable this issue we can't put everything onto these discrete websites and expect there to be any cohesion and then we certainly can't then start focusing only on those for all of our news and our our our, the the way to gauge what's going on in society or we're fucked Uh, well, I think we are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> we are fucked. But this is why I preferred websites. I liked websites because having like a proliferation of different smaller institutions, each with their own editorial voice, created this pluralistic media society. But, but here, here, we're talking about the old media versus this new social media thing. Why, why, don't, we, why don't we talk about this article that I want to talk about? Uh, Ethan, do you want to sort of summarize the, the article? You just read it. Uh, it was an NBC yeah. article, NBC, uh, NBC News, NBC.com, I'm trying to remember, but it was basically about the um, the tension between Facebook and the New York Times and how the New York Times had taken ads out 
instructing, uh, I believe, Facebook subscribers as to how to break up with Facebook and Instagram and uh, then just come to the New York Times. And I think what was being alleged from the Facebook side, uh, not, not without reason, is that the Times views Facebook as a competitor and is acting not as an honest broker, just giving information to the people, but is trying to um, slander its competition and ruin its reputation, and that's informing a lot of their coverage. Obviously, people at the New York Times did not agree with that assessment, but what a fascinating struggle over who controls uh, what the public consumes. Yeah, and I think that, like, well, that gets to the heart of, like, why the Internet is bullshit right now. <laughs> well, I think, like, it's important That's to... That's the name of this podcast. Why the Internet is bullshit right now. Well, the, this is, like, the whole point of this, right? The Internet, this thing that we grew up on that was, like, this amazing thing, this, like, testament to humanity, this, like, a wonder of the world, I believe we've completely ruined it. Mm. And I think there are people who work at these companies who actually think they've finally brought it to what it's meant to be, which is like the saddest thing hmm. that Facebook is like, we've connected the world. Whereas I would allege like, no, the internet connected the world. You yeah. just like sucked it all up yeah. and you've centralized the internet. You're controlling the internet. You, your vision for the internet is one in which you are a major player and it's completely destroyed the thing. Yeah. I'm a little more uh, tech evangelism uh, sympathetic uh, in some respects, right? I, I like being able to use an Uber. I enjoy being able to look up reviews on Yelp, uh, but but I will say, and so I don't just reject that Silicon Valley ruined everything, uh, but, but I will say, in the context of how we're getting our information and reacting to it, celebrating this almost feels a little like Dr. Strangelove waving your cowboy hat as you hurtle to the earth riding a, a nuclear bomb. It just seems so hard to fathom that this is anybody's idea of utopia, the way we're getting information and reacting to it and responding to it. But I want to bring us back to something um, in that article right. on that tension between the New York Times and Facebook. What I find interesting about it, I don't think that I could really tell you if the New York Times is being fair or unfair to Facebook. I couldn't even probably tell you um, if what Facebook alleges is true, that they're biased because they view Facebook as a competitor. I find that to be a very plausible accusation. But what I find interesting about it is that the New York Times doesn't feel the need to suck up to Facebook at all. Well, I think they're getting to that point. I mean, I think that like the New York I, Times yeah, that's has what I'm been... Well, what's so... what why it's so cool... <laughs> that the, the <laughs> so New you're York Team Times, Times. Team Times. Well, so, I mean, the Times absolutely is going after... Facebook like they've mm -hmm. they've decided to throw down the gauntlet they're like enough of this shit we are and I do I like absolutely they see it as a threat to their very being they're a powerful enough media organization that they can take on Facebook so I believe people there have taken it as their responsibility to do it mm -hmm. because there are so many media organizations that are not large enough to actually so wage that is, war. is the New York Times in a way calling Facebook's bluff because it, it's interesting to me that the Times is willing to take on Facebook to this degree because I feel as though a lot of other publications would be terrified of what Facebook could do to them. And right. so so I guess here's the question I'm going to ask you. Is this partially a function of Facebook not effectively monetizing the internet for, for publications? Because 
maybe this is some of what the Times is, is doing is looking at Facebook and saying, you know what, you aren't the gatekeeper that you say you are, and you won't help us the, say, the way that you say you will, so we might as well try to destroy you. Well, so you can even hear the disdain that people at Facebook have for things like the New York Times. So, like, uh, Mark Zuckerberg came out with his, like, challenge for the year 2019. This year, his challenge has been to hold a series of town halls and debates with people and to discuss the future of technology, huh. uh, which is great. Hey, you know, yeah. I think that's wonderful. Uh, Zuckerberg, if you want to talk about comedy online, I'd be happy to talk to you about how you destroyed I, I, I it. I like the idea of doing something that might sound fun to other people in the industry, like holding a convention is positioned as a, as a challenge. I just mm. think there's something funny about yeah, that. Yeah, right. It's like this. Like, it's like a show. He wants to have like a show. Yeah. He's giving himself a show. It's like, let's all hang out and talk about my industry. This yeah. is my challenge for this year. But it's also, it also just sounds like some, you know, it sounds like a bro being like, yeah, come on, conv- convince me I'm wrong. It like speaks to me like how he truly has no idea how wrong he is about so many things. But anyways, but even in his announcement, about this he said like one of the things that he wants to debate is should media be controlled by the people or by traditional gatekeepers which phrasing it that way it feels yeah, like the, the he's gate, already waited it the gatekeepers are people uh, sure <laughs> right. unless he has built some sort of ai to gatekeep well that's his idea is that he is, was like should it be open to all people in a democratic way or should it should traditional gatekeepers be able to, you know, decide what you do and do not see on media? Um, yeah, that seems like maybe putting your thumb on the scale just a bit. Right, it does. But I think fundamentally, people like him and people in tech believe that they've come up with a better business model and a better model in general for media, mm. which is that you don't need gatekeepers, that you can have every everybody in like one big morass shouting and upvoting and liking and sharing is enough of a gatekeeper and editorial function that that's all people need. Mm. And I think that fundamentally that product and that idea is so flawed and bad that it will lead us to ruin and disaster. (laughs) If there's nobody working in media, Mm. then everybody's working in media. And then suddenly all of us are working for these platforms for free, which is like my main contention that all of these things make a lot more sense. If you think about Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, if you think about yourself as an employee working for them for free, they start making a lot more sense. Okay, so this is interesting to me. So is your issue with him saying that not that he's lying, but that he's telling the truth and you think a highly democratized way of communicating is actually disastrous because we need hierarchies uh, and we need some sort of systems of, of organization. I think it's important for there to be experts in things uh-huh. and for those experts to be able to communicate their ideas to the rest of the human population. Mm. And if you agree with that statement, that there should be experts in things and that experts should be paid attention to, then I think you disagree with the Zuckerberg framework. Mm. Because you're, one, by buying into a world in which media is not a paying gig, where being a reporter is not a paying thing, where being a creator of high-quality content is not a paying gig, that instead it's just whoever shouts the loudest or has something to say on the topic, and that happens to go viral, then you're saying that people should not be able to be paid for that work, 
And therefore you're saying it's not a profession. So you don't think people should be training to do that thing well. And you think that even if you were to somehow still become an expert on something, that that doesn't mean that your opinion is any more valid than any random person who has something to say on the thing. So I'm, I'm taking this all in. Um, I, I think I, the idea of democratized information appeals to me a little bit more than it appeals to you. Um, and I think the devil is in the details in a way. I like the idea of there being some sort of check on expertise. I do fear groupthink, I think, more than you do. And I think if there are experts who are too safe in their in their field and um you know they that that to use some to use a term that's quite popular in my region that some disruption is good i just don't necessarily think the way it's happened has been altogether positive uh because these services that we're using with social media for whatever reason that a lot of people pontif um, pont have pontificated on um seem to divide everything into a binary and I, I do think that there's something to what you're saying, though, on the lack of incentives being properly aligned, the idea that you'll get money if you do good work, that that is undermining um, just the entire truth-seeking operation of society in general. But I'm just throwing that out there. Well, I certainly that? agree with you that there should always be a check on these gatekeepers and on writers and things like that. And I think that that has been traditionally built into media, letters to the editor, or just people talking about the things that they see and read, and then that feeding back into the media. True, mm. like yeah, as you said before, it, getting rid of traditional gatekeepers in favor of people <laughs> seems to make you. I mean, it seems to set up a dichotomy between who gatekeepers are and people when they mm. are always people and yeah. they're in society. And I think so. And this is so getting to something that I think I know you wanted to talk about. Oh, okay. Which was one is one symptom of this stupid shitty internet and media system that we've entered into that there is no feeder system yeah okay so this this to me is interesting maybe it's a little bit inside baseball maybe it's too media navel gazy but it, it's interesting to me just in that i want to know how widespread this phenomenon is because i'm tired of feeling as though maybe i'm just imagining it i i, I and in it was so interesting when we were talking about our industries, and I didn't know this was happening in your industry, though I could detect it a little bit, how there aren't uh, a lot of young people coming onto the scene suddenly making it big in comedy. And there doesn't also seem to be the pipeline that once was there where they would be on YouTube and you would get your web series and then it would turn into something big later. And I perceive something very similar in my industry. Maybe somebody could tell me otherwise, but I don't see a pipeline of people becoming sports journalists. And you can attribute it to newspapers dying, but it's not quite that because there used to be blogs and people would write blogs about teams and then they would get hired to then write on ESPN or write in the, at newspapers and, and, and whatnot. And so um, I know people who are younger than me in the industry, but they tend to have started around when I started. I don't know a lot of people just coming into it. I know of a parallel sports media world uh, in barstool sports that's very large and very um, kind of of its own ethos, uh, but I just see no pipeline. But that's and, still just one website. Yes, yeah. Well, I think it, it, it shows you that you it, it's such an unusual thing nowadays to get a website that people go to. It is. Barstool <laughs> is very interesting and unusual that it's able to exist. Yeah, um, and so... 
Yeah. It seems as though, and nobody wants to say it, I think there's a bias against saying it because you sound like an old person and people don't want to sound old. They don't want to sound like, kids these days aren't da-da-da in my day, da-da-da. So sometimes in a period of decline, people won't even call, call it what it is. But it seems to be so. There aren't young people blowing up anymore. If we look at the context of comedy... Your world loosely. I know you don't love stand-up completely. I know that's not what you do. But when I was young, uh, there would be these massive young stand-ups who would become world famous. They would become world famous, I think, around when we were 12, 13 years old. Chris Rock was that guy. Maybe he was in his early 30s at that time. I'm not sure. Um, But you would have young comics. Eddie Murphy famously in his early 20s when he blew up. Um you don't see that. I know somebody might say Bo Burnham, and he he definitely has a following, but it's just nothing like what it was. And it seems as though the most popular stand-up comics, the ones who are the most famous, are middle-aged or older. And why isn't this thing regenerating? Why isn't it regenerating in comedy? Why isn't it regenerating in sports? You seem to think that it has something to do with Facebook, and that has undermined this process, and I'm interested in the why of that. Well, I, so I think that, so when I came up doing comedy, it felt like there was a million ways to make comedy and get it out in front of people online, and that the doing those things, one, you had enough flexibility to do something that was unique and special to like what you wanted to do. And in doing that thing, you would be rewarded with like doing more of it, paying gigs, getting into some pipeline of media that existed. So, and even Bo Burnham, like even Bo Burnham was like big on early YouTube. A lot of like sketch comedians were big on early YouTube or even funnier die, I suppose. But like you were able to kind of like get web series, get like high quality comedy, and put it out there. Mm. A famous example that I've like used before is like Homestar Runner. Like, can you oh. think of something more amazing than like <laughs> a full website ecosystem dedicated to like a, a set of characters? Yeah, that was a full multi like media experience. Like, it was more than just a TV show. It was like you know so many things. Akewood was the same way. A web comic that built its own blogging ecosystem and world. Well, what was interesting about Homestar Runner was enjoying it at that age and having no conception of how popular it was. And was it you? Somebody somebody I was friends with went on a tour of a college when we were in high school. Um, oh, yeah, Trogdor. It was like, yeah, it was me. I went to like Northwestern or something. And shit. that blew my mind. I didn't know that they knew about Homestar Runner out there. And there was no other – We we it was just a different time. So – there, there weren't necessarily a ton of think pieces and trend pieces on everything new and somewhat popular. So in, in a paradoxical way, things could be bigger while being less dissected. Sure. Yeah. Well, but they but like so right now, the so the equivalent is Instagram. Somebody is like listening to this and screaming like all of this is happening. It's just not on what you're staring at. It's happening yeah. on Snapchat or it's happening on Instagram or it's happening on on Twitter. And like, yeah. It is like millions and millions of young people are obsessing over meme pages and meme communities and things on other on social platforms. But and I know this (laughs) from experience and from talking to people in those scenes that doesn't fucking lead anywhere. 
The difference is that if I made a really great web series, mm-hmm. like it would get turned into something bigger. I tell so uh, oh. Onion News Network that I worked for became two television shows. Uh Broad City was a web series, it became a television show. Insecure was uh Awkward Black Girl and it became Insecure. Uh what was uh High Maintenance. Like mm. there were there like there's a whole world and I kind of lumped uh Atlanta into this too a little bit because Donald Glover was also like very yeah, much mis- like an internet Yeah, mystery team, right? And, uh yeah. well yeah, those guys. Derek Comedy got big on YouTube. That was like a sketch group. Oh yeah, Derek that, And then he and then Don like I remember Donald Glover from uh Extra Normal. Do you remember Extra Normal? No, clearly I've gotten the wrong thing, and I was trying to impress you with some sort of comedy knowledge. And I no, no, no. Failed. Derek was what he was famous on, but then he did. But like Extra Normal, Extra Normal is like a perfect example of what tech should do, mm. and also why it doesn't work. Well, Extra Normal was uh, what it was like a, a program online where you fed dialogue in, and CGI characters would would say it. Well, it it seems. That for a moment at least, any of these new mediums generated a little bit of a farm system. And so YouTube generated a little farm system, and then they graduated up to doing the TV shows. And TV shows, I guess, were never disrupted to the point where they weren't the end point. Or they TV shows and movies, I should say. Um, and then Twitter... Suddenly there were a lot of Twitter comedians, and then maybe that helped lead to something for those people. I, was Is Rob Delaney that kind yeah, of guy? Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, so there were people like that, and that was a stepping there stone. There was an era of the internet where any of these things could have been stepping stones Vine, to something bigger. Vine, for instance, I still see people in TV and movies who were Vine stars earlier, like uh, King Bach, right? Mm-hmm. And then Vine went away. Is Snapchat different in kind to where it's not actually a farm system and I think that well I think that the system is still there there is still young talent on all these things but I think what's happening is that as these entities as Facebook Instagram and to a increasingly lesser degree Snapchat as it becomes irrelevant uh, is that as they become bigger mm-hmm. they're no longer a stepping stone to something larger because they're destroying those larger things. That's fascinating. So we're entering into a world in which there are no, where like television channels are about to collapse, just like websites just did. Where it used to be there were like small democ- dem- de- democratized spaces yeah. where if you did something cool, an institution would find you and bring you in and pay you money and help you live and survive and work while you developed what you yeah. did. And then maybe you could develop something bigger. That institution could have been a television network. That institution could have been a website like the onion or funny or die. The, the older, the, the ESPN, not, not, not the oldest form, but an older form of this, I, I would think about is just doing comedy in public. And then one of those guys would shuffle into the, uh, would shuffle into the room and he would be in the back watching you and then sure. afterwards. So UCB as yeah. an institution, all these things, this idea that there are institutions that exist, these are the gatekeepers we're talking about. Mm-hmm. An institution is like a fixed thing that enough people care about for enough time that it becomes something important to the people who are involved and that that thing can then pick and choose what it wants to be a part of that institution. Hey, it's just, it, all of it is just an organizational structure for people to get money doing art. Mm-hmm. And what's happening is as these institutions are crumbling around us, because these non-institution-based 
media systems, mm. which is social media, are getting larger, the institution-based media systems are falling apart. And we're getting no stability. We're getting no way for work to happen. We're getting no way for anyone to like stick around even long enough for you to pay attention to them. And not to, and unable to become part of something larger and to collaborate on bigger projects. And I think this is what's this is like a fundamental problem. Okay, so I guess the question I would ask, the question I would ask from the other perspective, mm -hmm. because I know what some of the responses would be. It's it was always this way, you know. Maybe the public liked silent movies and that whole industry is disrupted. You watch Boogie Nights, people were into uh, the porn theaters and video upends, that entire industry. Totally. And this is just how it goes. Um, and I, I, I certainly think about that argument. I think this is more of the anti-old person bias or, sure. or the anti-declinist um, bias. But I, I, I think the question is, is the public getting what they want? Because I don't think a lot of people listening to this are going to cry massive tears for creators and artists not getting the money that they would want. I think the question is, is the public being deprived of something in the exchange? And if they are, then then why why is that? And why isn't the public capable of putting their money in a direction that would fulfill them more? Sure. I well, so I think then the the question is like, is this media worse, and do we not like it as much? Because we're all still scrolling through our phones at a bunch of memes that are being made by anonymous people, and we all seem to think that that's funny and fun. Mm. And is that not better and funnier than like an old it's like four minute we web have, series? We don't have an infinite. We, we might have infinite entries, but we don't have an infinite amount of time, mm -hmm. and so. We're not necessarily conscious that anything we're enjoying is spending from somewhere else. But yeah, that's a great observation that you laughing at these memes made by random people doesn't feel like a competitor to watching a TV show in the moment. It's a very different kind of thing. Um, you don't necessarily think about you drinking your morning coffee as something that takes away from you enjoying a book or enjoy something else. But it is. It takes your eyeballs. It, it is. does. And I think that what... And what's weird and what's insidious and what's scary to me is that none of us individually feels like things are like that. This is any worse than the stuff that came before it. Mm. But if you look around us, it feels like everything is falling apart. Yeah. <laughs> and it feels like so like the common themes of the Internet right now are depression, like deep depression are like feelings of lack of control mm. feel like and so, fucking so you, most memes are about this most memes are about people wanting to kill themselves the feeling when um yeah well, or just like so deep you depression believe, you believe sort of the early social science i know there's been some arguments about whether is it twenge or twi i can't pronounce her last name um you know, some of the science on the increased anxiety and suicide rates and uh, indications that it's affecting teenage girls most. Uh, do you buy that stuff and you think that that's real? I'm I'm a little more wait and see on it. I'm a little more. All know. I know. Well, so one like, yeah, I mean, I, the, the study is right. And even Facebook came out with a study like this. The family speed guys are so like. The, they sat on the study for so long until they could find a narrative to spin it correctly, mm. which is that, yes, if you passively take in feeds and platforms, if you passively take in media, it makes you more depressed. But if you actively engage with it, then that is correlated to like b better outcomes. Mm. 
And there's a few things that are interesting about this. One, Facebook finally came out with this because they wanted people to engage more with their platform rather than passively take stuff in. They acknowledge that that's good, but also that's self-serving. They want, they're saying that the solution to being depressed on Facebook is to use Facebook more, not less. But the other thing about this is that if you passively taking in television didn't make us feel this way. Well, I think it, Kind it of could. Did. It could. Daytime it television, there reality was a lot television. Of, back in the 90s, there was a lot of kids sitting around watching TV all day. I certainly was one of those we kids. We grew up on television. I, I would come home in middle school and I would just watch shitty sitcom after shitty sitcom after shitty sitcom. Yeah. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I do think it was to fulfill some sort of... Uh, void in me just to go on autopilot to let somebody else think for you for a little while well and i was also i was a latchkey kid uh, only child so it was just i think it was a little bit of um a loneliness mitigator sure but i don't know i don't know if that had some terrible effect on me or impeded my ability to think what it didn't do is give me any sort of sense of my peers judging me Mm -hmm. i didn't have any sense like that if I was watching that that Wayne's Brothers uh, sitcom or whatever else was on immediately after school, I can't even I can't even remember. Um, I might have had the thought of I'm wasting my time and this isn't the best art in the world, but I wasn't thinking, oh, I wasn't invited to this thing, or oh, look what my friends are doing, or oh, this is uh, I'm now they're saying bad things about me. You know what? It, but also it was like an no, in, it now could we're be in an a different, interest. Yeah, we're, we're we're in a whole totally different territory about I don't, development. But no, I don't think so. Yeah. But like watching TV, it was like I like this kind of television. Mm-hmm. That was even something that you would put in like a bio. Like I like watching like scary movies. I like watching comedy shows. I like watching dramas. I love watching reality TV. I like watching MTV. Like mm-hmm. they they were associated still with like an identity that you could take on and with like a peer group that you could hang out with. Like I loved going over to a friend's house and staying up late enough to watch like the metal show on MTV. Mm. Like I because we like, loved when we were when we were in high school. We loved talking about Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yeah, exactly. Like it was a part of your identity. Nobody talks about that, like so, like logging onto Twitter and scrolling through it for two hours in your bed. Well, I think that's right, not an identity; that's just depression. No, I, and I and I think there's something to that. And we should add the caveat that I do think teenagers are now talking about Rick and Morty. I think sure. that is something that they. I mean, that is a scene in the movie Eighth Grade where at the end, uh, the protagonist and this uh, this little nerdy boy she's pretended befriended. Or, uh, or talking about Rick and Morty. So I do think that, you know, kids still watch TV shows and talk about them. That hasn't Absolutely. ended. But, but what you're saying about how it's like they created something that was more addictive than it was fulfilling, and it's taking away from the other things that had addictive components but were ultimately more fulfilling. Had more nutrition to them. Yes. And it's funny that we're defend- – like I, I feel now about watching TV the way I, I used to feel about books. Where it's like, oh shit, I shouldn't be watching so much TV, I should read books. Mm-hmm. But now I'm like, fuck, I need to stop scrolling through Twitter, I should watch TV. Like, it's better for me. And yeah. it's like, you feel that nutrition-like pipeline. I mean, I definitely should fucking read more books. Well, I, I'm feeling <laughs> it right now. I'm watching the BBC Dynasties series of documentaries, if anybody's a, plan, a fan of Planet Earth. It's like that, but they fixate on one animal. It's funny that Ethan's admitting this because he's admitting to being a criminal by saying that he's watching it. Because if you know if you know anything about dynasties on BBC, you know it's unable to be watched in the United States of America except by illegal streaming. Well, I, I, I 
secretly I'm a British citizen, and so yeah. <laughs> that's the lie you're gonna tell the guy. Yeah, this? yeah. You're gonna tell the judge I'm a British citizen. I'm a British citizen. <laughs> oh, yeah, with that accent. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm just gonna say oi. And <laughs> Ethan, oi, right here at uh, 30 minutes <laughs> and 32 seconds into this podcast, you admitted <laughs> to being able to to watch a BBC program. Uh, to me, to my eyes, that would seem illegal. <laughs> well, to your eyes, but your eyes cannot deduce who didn't is. Even do the accent. Who I is. just set up you doing the accent. You didn't even do the accent. <laughs> I was gonna do my defense without the accent because I thought it was funnier. Wait, do the defense with the accent. <laughs> I just want to hear. Your I accent. can't do a British accent. That's what I want to hear. I want to hear you. You want me to? Hear. I think the British accent is too close. To being like the American accent Jesus. for me to do it. It's just in between. Do it. Just do it already. <laughs> do it. Do it. Um, I, I, I can't do it. I'm oh incapable. God. Defend yourself to the judge. Do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Just do a British accent for two seconds. I feel as though I'm on the edge of a cliff and you're beseeching I'm, me to. I'm, I'm pushing you off the cliff. I'm yeah, doing come on. Accent. Just, just jump. It. Just fucking jump. Everyone's going to catch you. Just fucking do it. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, what, then, then, Ethan? Ethan? Hello, what, Ethan? How did you watch Dynasties? How did you watch Dynasties on BBC? A service paid for by the British people. How did you see it? Like this this cockney prosecutor. Cockney? Who are you calling cockney? Defend yourself. Are you British or not? Or isn't he? Is he British or is it me? <laughs> British! Come on then, British! Oh. oh, it's killing me that you're not Britishing. Just fucking do it. I don't do it. This isn't improv, Matt. I don't just yes and. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> the listeners have the biggest blue balls. Just I, 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 I... You know, I feel like I can, I can do the, hello, 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 hello. (laughs) I can't do what you're doing. I can do that sort of transatlantic, uh, ridiculous, uh, William F. Buckley accent where people would talk fancy and they would be British-ish in America at a certain, at a certain period of time like that. They would, (laughs) they would do that. Um, That's good. But I can't, I, I don't think I can do full British. I don't think it's in me. I've never been to England. Here's what I can do. I can imitate people I know from other countries if I've met them and I know them. Who's a British person that you know? I don't know any British people. You don't know a single fucking British person? I don't know a single Brit. Hey, Matt, this is what we're talking about. This is the two Americas. Maybe in your (laughs) highfalutin, cosmopolitan bubble. (laughs) My friends are fucking British, dude. Yeah, yeah, you're meeting Nigel (laughs) and Oliver. Not I. I'm with the real Americans. Uh, I I didn't end up knowing as many British people as I would have liked. Yeah. Siobhan? Siobhan Thompson was British. Let me tell you something about covering the NBA. It's not exactly the <laughs> pipeline to Britannia. Is there not a single British player? Yeah, there are not a lot of discussions on, uh, you know, the, the, the conflict with the Irish back in the day. Uh, you know, the trouble. Hello, love. Ain't she throwing enough three-pointers? <laughs> Hello, love. <laughs> Steve Curry. Steve Curry. <laughs> How you throwing all them three pointers? 
I imagine this character is like more of a puddle than a person. It's like a goo. It's kind of like a goo mount with like glasses that howls out at Steph Curry at NBA press conferences. Steph Curry, Curry, Curry. How'd you show man so? How'd you throw so many three pointers? I can. All, it's funny. I can imitate Andrew Bogut. Who's Australian? Who played for the? Oh Warriors. yeah, your friend Bo. It's just him in my head. I could not. I couldn't do it. <laughs> you can't. Put, you can't put it out. I can't do a general Australian accent. I can just. I can just imitate Andrew Bogut trying to get me to write about um about Mark Jackson getting into a scandal. Like what would that sound? His like? former coach. What would like, that sound like? Ethan, have you noticed that there are a lot of coaches getting into the sex scandals recently? Have you noticed it? Ethan, you just sound like a villain. You don't sound like an Australian. You just sound like a weird trench-coated villain. No, no, but it goes to, you know, Mark Jackson once said, uh, sometimes people want to talk about the butterfly and they don't credit the caterpillar because he felt some sort of resentment and jealousy of Steve Kerr getting a bunch of credit uh, for winning a championship with the team he used to coach. Mm. And so Bogut at that point was trying to get me to make a reference to another. He was saying, oh, he said, have you noticed a lot of former broadcasters are getting are having sex scandals? And I I said, oh yeah yeah, because there was a recent one involving some broadcaster around that time. And he goes, oh, and you know, there's one I'm thinking about. Is it the one you're thinking about? And I go, I don't, I don't know. He's like, oh, it's a big one. It's a big one. I'm like, I don't I don't know. And then and then Bogut goes. The caterpillar. <laughs> it's just so amusing to me. <laughs> Around that time. Wait, were you saying that Jackson was having a sex scandal? <laughs> he had one when he was with the Warriors in the beginning. Uh, yes, he, he had, had a one. sex scandal. It was, a, I believe, a stripper who was trying to extort him, oh. and it's all publicly available. I never discussed it with him. I don't know. <laughs> this is a publicly available <laughs> sex scandal, as opposed to <laughs> the ones behind paywalls. Well, yeah, as opposed to the ones behind paywalls. <laughs> the sex scandals that are. Been hidden yeah, it's for the people. Only. Zuckerberg would be very happy. It's a yeah, very democratized sex scandal. Yeah, Facebook is mostly publicly available. Yeah, it's not one of them, you know, sex scandals that the gatekeepers keep for themselves. Yeah, this is fucking uh, the yeah. elitists. Yeah, hoarding yeah. all the good sex scandals for yeah. themselves. But I think I did love the, the. Did you see that this week? The Inquirer, the Inquirer broke the story about Bezos's affair. And I didn't know they broke it. They broke it. And there it's, oh man, it actually, it does make you pine for like the old style tabloid journalism. And I, and I fully know that the national Enquirer yeah. is like among, you know, is like deserves a whole level of hell. Like absolutely. Mm-hmm. But they're like, they just did such good tabloid reporting of like, we doggedly followed Bezos for six months, catching him in like this hotel and that hotel. And for, but and on the online article, it's, it says, and we've got screenshots of text message conversations, but to see him, you've got to pick up the Enquirer on your local newsstand. Wow. They didn't fucking give it up. They didn't give it up to the internet at all wow which i fucking respect man because here we are talking about trying to save websites meanwhile I, we're like fucking print is long dead mm. but that's the progression we're talking about is like it went like digital websites killed print and they replicated it right and they like and they destroyed print journalism but i think we all felt like but that's okay because like blogs have been created and yeah you can make fun of blogs 
but a lot of super relevant people came out of blogs like my friend Ethan Strauss <laughs> or you know Matt Iglesias and Andrew Sullivan and <laughs> like weird. fucking just Glenn like, Greenwald just start naming me followed by a bunch of just bald men yeah, just yeah. <laughs> all the bald men I know and, and me and who Ethan. is not bald <laughs> very proud of bald. it of uh, not being please bald please guys I, I want to be very clear here Ethan is not bald I don't want you to think he's bald but every other bald man that was able to say, no I mean but I think so, there's so a ton I of never okay so I'm going to tell a story about something Joan Walsh okay so now that you mentioned Joan Walsh I'm just going to tell the story it has maybe nothing to do with anything Great. but I, I, I've alluded to the story I've never told it before and I don't want to get sued all I can say that this story is completely a million percent true it happened to me um, I was I believe an intern in the old days of the internet oh man I love this story at Salon.com. <laughs> now, I don't really like Salon these days as an aside. <laughs> well, that's because they've gone downhill because they can't make yeah. any fucking money. They've been chasing the clickbait yeah. dragon, unfortunately. But back then, you know, uh, more respectable, liberal publication. Um, I saw there was an internship opening. The economy had just crashed. It seemed like a thing to do. It was already bad news, though. The The office I was in was already half cleared out from all the layoffs. So it was a little welcome to journalism. And, um, you know, I eventually just said, fuck it. I, I like sports better. But anyway, um, I was supposed to do some year in review and just email a bunch of pundits. And it was a different time where it was very tribal and the left and right were at war. But there was still more of a sense of crossover to where I was to email all these different pundits and ask them for some sort of essay to contribute about what they thought of the year in politics. It might have been 2010. I don't I don't know. So even though Tucker Carlson was Tucker Carlson, no, but, yeah, whatever. 2010. Even though Tucker Carlson was Tucker Carlson, he was one of the people I was supposed to reach out to to ask to write something for salon.com. Just imagine that. Think back to such a time where that would happen, yeah? And this is like post crossfire. Like he'd already been like taken off air. This is like during the Tucker Carlson dark time that well, apparently we're out of now. Apparently Tucker Carlson is like allowed back on the air now. Although like up for how long? Who he's knows? Got an audience of three million people. But yeah. anyway, around this time, I call him up, and he, to my mind, seemed faded. And it was fairly early in the day. Ethan, you need to describe faded because I do think that that's a regional term. That's a regional term. I think that's a regional term. It I found sounded like he had a few. He had been drinking. It, I found this like, out recently because I was t I asked him. I was organizing like a karaoke event at a BYO place or a place that was no longer BYO. Your voice is getting so much I know, more yeah. San Diego. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, this, this is the San Diego yeah, yeah. portion of the podcast. And I was like, we can't bring in beers. Hello, but governor. <laughs> Hello, governor. <laughs> Hello, Steph. Hello, Steph Curry. Uh, uh, British San Diegan. Hello, uh, Steph Curry. Uh, cheerio. Fader. So we're getting faded. We're getting faded. It's well, because it's like literally the British one is like uh, it's like rapidly changing yes. octaves. Hello, Diego. And San Diego is like just monotone. They yeah. are at opposition. Uh, so. But uh, I was like, that's okay because we can make some Faderade and bring it mm. in. Faderade being like vodka plus or. Hey like everybody! I'm Sherlock Holmes and shit. <laughs> Elementary, my dear Watson. <laughs> and so, uh, but anyways, but nobody fucking knew what Faderade was. So I presume faded is somewhat of a regional term. Yes, that was when we. But when Tucker we was up. faded when we grew up. Um, as some young San Diego toughs. Yeah, you, it doesn't get more San Diegan than me and Ethan. <laughs> yeah, we would uh, combine some purple Gatorade with some vodka. I call it Faderade. 
<laughs> two guys whose parents like were too uh, too scared to let them like surf and skateboard. <laughs> The only two things to do in San Diego. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel we are not the archetypal San Diegans. Yeah, we don't have blonde not. hair. We didn't wear corduroy shorts. Yeah. Well, maybe you did. You no, know. I didn't wear corduroy shorts. I did wear jeans for a time. Uh, okay, so I, I think we were derailed from what we were talking about. We you were... faded Tucker Carlson. Yeah, Tucker Carlson. So I call up Tucker Carlson. He seems like he's had a few. That's just my report. Maybe he didn't. Can't prove it. Voice sounded a little slurry. But this to me. was like the dark time for this would Tuck, track. Yeah, this, this would dark, track. Dark times. Dark times for Tucker Carlson. Um, and I ask him about contributing this essay, year in review, and he just starts going in on Joan Walsh. Joan and, Walsh, the editor in, of Salon at the time. Yeah, editor, the in chief? editor in chief of Salon, and I think she's on MSNBC every now and again. And you know, she's a, a liberal pundit, and he's going off on Joan Walsh and. It, there was a little bit of an establishing conversation before. I'm trying to get the timing of everything right. He asked me where I'm from. Speaking of San Diego, I tell him that I'm from San Diego. He asked where. I, uh, I tell him La Jolla because that's where we're from. <laughs> because Tucker it was the truth. Because it was the truth. Uh, Tucker is also from La Jolla. That's right, yeah. And so he's like, ah, oh, man, my man Ethan, man. Oh, you're from La Jolla, too. So he slips into a San Diego <laughs> yeah, monotone. exactly. Tucker Carlson, <laughs> you might look at him as this patrician, uh, squeaky-voiced no, no, figure. No. He actually, his real self, the he's one behind the He's a wind-and-sea surf rat, just what, like what, the rest of us. What, what's funny is that the allegation against Tucker Carlson, well, one of many, is that he has taken on this populist garb, and he's such a, <laughs> a fancy-pants aristocrat. But in reality... Reality, yeah. he's just a fucking beach bum who's been hiding it the whole time. <laughs> so that voice comes out, and he says at one point that uh, Joan, Joan Walsh is just such a cunt. She's just such a cunt. <laughs> and I go, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I'm pretty, I'm pretty surprised. <laughs> you know, whoever's next to me in the cubicle, it might have been, it might have been Tracy Clark Flory. I, I, I'm trying to remember who was there, who I think wrote something recently for for Jezebel. I don't know. So. Um, he's, uh, and, and he says at one point, and it seems as though he's just, he's trying to be provocative, that he's just trying to get me. He's almost amusing himself by being so sexist because he says that, oh, she just needs, like, she just needs to get fucked. She just needs a dick, man. She just needs a dick. <laughs> what Tucker Carlson told an intern at yeah. salon.com yep. that called him at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, <laughs> I'm trying to even remember how the exchange uh, finishes up. Uh, it, it does rather quickly because he's not going to write this essay. Um, and it seems as though maybe <laughs> there's even more reason not to, uh, not to take the work from him. I don't know, but I hang up the phone. I turn to my cubicle mates and I say, you'll never believe what just happened. What Tucker Carlson just said, it goes up the flagpole. Joan Walsh is informed about it. And then there is a big discussion <laughs> on whether I should write this up because there's no evidence of it happening. Right, I didn't, record didn't record this it. conversation. I wonder Which how a big lesson I... for you aspiring journalists out there, of which we've already established there are none. Yes. There is no pipeline of journalists. Yeah. But if you are like sucking on like whatever is like <laughs> the, the dribbles left and like the the LA river like uh, dried up pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure you always are recording. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I record a, 
you know, so many of my interviews now, you were there and you were quite amused when I was recording one where I was given the wrong source. Oh, and yeah, I was, that was great. And you, you actually sent me the recording because I was doing it on your phone. So I think part of the reason I do that is because of what happened because I didn't have any evidence of this happening. Looking back on it, I'm kind of glad I didn't get thrown into some crazy Tucker Carlson controversy. Mm. But anyway, so there was this big discussion of what to do. And I was pulled into Joan Walsh's office, asked if I would be willing to write about it. I was informed that the person who was most on the side of, he's got to talk about this because it's illustrative of the core of this man and this movement was Glenn Greenwald. At this time, <laughs> Glenn. Glenn Greenwald, Glenn Greenwald who, I've imploring never, you. who I've never had a conversation with, I've never had an email exchange with, was just heavily behind this project of having me reveal... <laughs> That I had had this conversation with Tucker, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson had called Joan Walsh a cunt to yeah. an intern. Like, part of the story is that you are an intern. <laughs> yes. Eventually, we settle on, we don't have the evidence, but I should call him up the next day and see if he's willing to just reiterate all of this. I call him up that day. Obviously, I'm recording at that time. And at this point, he sounds sharp. He sounds sober. He doesn't admit Faded to anything. Faded no more. Faded no more. The whole controversy slips through the cracks, and that was that back in uh, back in 2010. And I don't know if it's um, I don't know if it's a smart idea for me to reveal any of this that could get aggregated in political world. I, It'd be I, so fun. What is what is going to happen? Tucker Carlson revealed to have called someone a cunt to an intern. To an intern. In but I guess I mean if you if you tra if you trace back Carlson's tweets and he's called Joan Walsh a cunt. That would probably, I don't know, that would make news. Which, I mean, like, that sucks, I guess. I don't know. Or does that cool? I don't know. We're saying it's news, but it's like if Cody Carlson know. gets dragged just, for calling I, Joan Walsh a cunt today in 2019. I just have an aversion to getting involved in that whole world. <laughs> I think I heard that, that he's clean now and he's he's sober, right? I, I but heard, he still could believe this. I, I mean, Does he still believe that Joan Walsh, a very respected, intelligent, political pundit, where is she now? I have no idea. Who knows? But she, I mean, she already was like of like an elite. Well, this is the time when I like mean, someone, a writer like her was like, it's prestigious for her to be at this blog. I mean, she doesn't follow me on Twitter, so I, I, oh. I can't even, you know, whatever happened with Joan... <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, I would be funny to confront Tucker and ask him if he stands by his or if he would admit that this happened. Statement. Yeah, or he would admit that it happened. But yes, he is in a fascinating place right now in the culture. There's been a ton of Tucker Carlson commentary um, and analysis. And I don't know how we got on the whole Tucker thing. Why are we talking about Tucker Carlson? We were what talking about like the heyday of like blo the blogs, blogosphere, mm. and like I mean that was like a democratizing time. But like, it, but it was still a time when you could build institutions. And I admit that probably this time was worse. It, like newspaper people would probably listen to this and being like, oh, it was better when there was like newspapers and shit. But I don't know, like magazines and newspapers, that was somewhat fluff. Mm. Uh, a lot of it was garbage. But like that, gar but like the good things about magazines, I feel like there was a. Here's the thing. I just feel like there was a period of time when. Like long reads were big. There was that old Portlandia sketch where it was like Fred did Armisen. You read, did you read? Did you read? Yeah, and Carrie. Yeah, exactly. And it was like we were all reading these like interesting long read articles and watching like the high like web videos that were aspiring as best they can to be television, but you could see them for free. And there, and I know that a lot of these business models weren't succeeding that well, 
at the time, but it seemed attainable that this could have been a great way for media to exist and it completely has fallen apart. Mm. And instead we have, so, so going back to this idea of like, well, maybe all these feeder people, all the young up and comers, they're like running meme accounts on Instagram and Twitter. And like, I can tell you like being a Twitter comedian, being an Instagram comedian, the people who do this stuff are powerfully depressed. They do not want to be doing it. It is not a scene. Like we were making, like there was a scene and it sucks because you're right. Like I can't help but sound like, an older person talking about you know days what? of yore, but like at a certain point, you know like when this everything bo- gets eroded, like you have to stand up and I say, feel like, like no, this is categorically different. I feel like we're almost trapped in a baby boomer's conception of uh, fuck you, dad, as the only righteous. Well, it's because this is the wave that we rode in on. Yeah. Was like we thought we could destroy everything and bring down the man and rebuild it. And we did. We like took down, we destroyed all the institutions that existed, and but then we replaced them with far worse ones. Yeah, I, I, I I think there's an anti-declinist bias and it's to counteract the instinct in people to get nostalgic and assume kids these days are idiots and whatnot. Um, but I am more of uh, an occasional declinist. Sometimes things are in decline. Sometimes things get worse. History is not just one uh, rapidly ascending uh, arrow. It's there are peaks and there are valleys yeah. and some things get worse while other things get better. Sometimes things get better overall, but worse in other ways. And we lose some, some artistry like Dan Carlin talking about how the Mongols could ride horses. Like nobody else has ridden horses since, because why would they need to? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I am more inclined to feel that way. Things are worse. I don't think we're in a good artistic moment. I think the peak of television happened a little recently. Um, yeah, we talk like we're still in peak TV, but I kind of think we, we've slipped out we, of it. We are not. Yeah. We are not in peak TV anymore. We were. We are currently not in peak TV. Movies are not very good. They are addicted to just remaking the same ones over and over again. And there are a multitude of reasons for why, and that's its whole you know, not even just a podcast, but a season of podcasts. But I don't believe we are getting good art. And it seems to be connected to our addiction to our phones and just staring at stimulus. And the content producers, as you say, don't seem very fulfilled as they chase some sort of affirmation while providing something that feels art-like. Everyone I know feels like this is like a dark time. Because there was, like, it felt like there was a time when like I committed to digital. I fucking love the internet and I committed to doing shit online because one that's where people were seeing your my shit, but also like you could say whatever you wanted and you could as long as you know it was within like the the smaller budgets that we had, but like you could do more innovative things. And now we're entering into a time where you can't even on these free platforms you can't say whatever you want. This is the whole like Facebook free speech bullshit mm. where where people are like where conservatives get mad at, at Facebook and, and Twitter for for censoring them. But I, but again, like all of this makes so much more sense if you don't think of these platforms as public squares, mm. which they're not. They're places that you're working for for free. And when you make a TV show 
half of the conversations that you have when making the TV show, when you submit your your scripts to like network, it's not about the content. Or it's not about the artistic merit of what you're doing. Half the notes are about like from standards and practices of what you can and cannot say, which brands you can and can't make fun of. Wow. And like what language you can and can't use. And a lot of why comedies on television like aren't that edgy and cool. It's funny. We're, we're going to have this entire podcast about technology um, effectively undermining the creation of art. And in the end, we'll just figure out that we created too many lawyers. That Basically, would be, that would yeah. Be the upshot. Well, but like already TV was compromised. Like TV was like we're saying it was great. And I mean, there was a lot of great television, but like a lot of television was getting good because like these standards and practice people were like loosening up because the pressure of the Internet made them like have to mm. like compete with like pe more places where people could say and do whatever they wanted. But still, like you just constantly have like these conversations with, what? OK, here's what our advertisers so, will so, allow you to but, do. So, so I, I would ask you this. YouTube is still around. YouTube is still right. popular. You know, I might say Vine used to produce people who ended up acting in things, but Vine is gone. Why isn't YouTube still the place where somebody makes high maintenance or somebody makes Awkward Black Girl and then gets a TV show on a bigger network? Why is YouTube not that place? Right because now? YouTube stopped being a feeder to bigger institutions and started becoming its own institution. Okay. And I know exactly, I was there when this happened. So the probably like one of the things that I've like worked on that uh, people know my work the most from is this show called Sex House that me and a bunch of onion writers, uh, thank you, uh, did on uh, did for YouTube for the Onion. Mm -hmm. So the so YouTube. You can trace this. It's interesting because you can just see the same business model happen over and over and over. And what happens is YouTube was an open platform. They were anyone could fucking put up any video that they wanted. And it was a relatively open space where good videos were seen. And YouTube wanted to expand and get bigger and they wanted to attract bigger, higher caliber talent. So they did this big grant competition where they spent like a hundred million dollars on getting bigger name brands and institutions on their platform. So they gave the onion a million dollar grant to make content exclusive to YouTube, to make 10 hours of content exclusive to YouTube. And so I was, uh, uh, so a bunch of onion writers, we formed a little team, mm. uh, of, uh, of staff for a year for this project. Huh. We ended up being the final onion writers left in New York city. Everybody else moved to Chicago, but we were still making writing this stuff in Brooklyn because the onion moved to Chicago, but you still had this big project. Right. So we, right. So we were writing shit in Dumbo, Brooklyn, and then shooting it in Chicago. And so we shot sex house. Mm -hmm. And uh, we blew a lot of our budget on Sex House, but it was still within reason. And we made four shows. We didn't, not even just that. We made three other shows. We shot them in Chicago and released them. And a lot of, and they were like pretty big hits. Some of them bigger than others. Sex House was like massive, but we had this show, Horrifying Planet, that was like a fake documentary show mm -hmm. that had a few episodes that did really well. All of it was, it felt like it still behaved like the normal internet, where not every video you make, not everything you make is going to be a hit. But if you make consistently good work, enough of those things will spike. And that's how we all learned how to make viral videos. Yeah. This is how it worked when we were hosting videos on theonion.com or how they were on YouTube. Put them up on YouTube. And then talking with YouTube even, they didn't want us to call it Sex House. 
YouTube refused to promote Sex House because it was called Sex House. They wanted us to call it Hookup House. Mm. We had a whole brainstorm of like alt titles that YouTube was okay with because they were like a lame company that was like scared of like edgy be, material. They, they didn't want it to sound like porn or for people yeah, to whatever. search for it and find porn. Yeah, or whatever. They yeah. just wanted to, things to be clean, whatever it was. But still, this was them playing with their advertisers. But they wanted higher quality content on there. So that they could sell advertisers on the fact that this isn't just rabble making like rabble videos that like people are making good advertiser worthy content on YouTube. And during this same time, so they gave us all these grants. And then in the middle of this, they introduced the algorithm. YouTube changed their algorithm to be the one that we now know today. I don't know. I, I wish I was more attuned to the differences at the time, but there was a big shift and the videos that we made and that uh, similar channels made suddenly got way less views uh, as YouTube shifted their algorithm to instead favor subscriber based content. And so to, to reward people that were playing by YouTube's rules, hmm. the and so this shift I now like see as much more as very more important because I've just seen it again and again and again where this is like the tech playbook where you invite the established players onto your platform to make your platform seem cool. Facebook played this yeah. again. Give them a grant. Give them enough funding to do that and then make them responsible for promoting and selling advertisers on that content for getting sponsors on their own content. I also now see how they can almost act like a, uh, a, a currency manipulator. Um, where they just run the entire company, the country's economy, where suddenly they say, look, your content is worth this per view right. or per whatever, and then they change the algorithm and suddenly everybody's work is devalued and it's, oh, where are you going to go? Like, yeah. was there, is, is it what, Vimeo? Like, where are you going to go? Exactly. And now you're trapped. You're stuck on the platform. So the same playbook is what Facebook has run. They, Facebook just ran it last year with television shows. Facebook has a bunch of like TV quality shows going up on Facebook. The original deals that they were making with those, they were they were telling the, the people making the TV shows that the first season is on us, but the next season you've got to find advertisers for. Mm. It was like, what, what kind mm. of television network is this? And they're trying to like, you know, just rewrite the rules of how these things work in the name of disruption and that but the model that they're putting in isn't better it sucks yeah uh so youtube though they changed the algorithm to favor basically rather than youtube being a feeder to other things youtube wanted to become a premium destination in and of themselves and you have to play by their rules and so then they started playing with things where it used to be a view was a view and you got paid based on you know, as long as there's an ad running next to your video, you got paid a certain amount, which YouTube has always been cagey about the amount. People have, it's always been known that they've been at different tiers. But then people started complaining that, well, hey, InfoWars is making a bunch of money off of YouTube ads. Like, you know, Sargon of Akkad or like right wing people are making money off the YouTube algorithm. And people started complaining. And people and YouTube started banning these channels or demonetizing them. This was the was, big demonetizing. What, what, what was push. the complaint? Because to me, you can object to their ideology, but if they're generating a bunch of views and if a bunch of people are visiting them, then in theory, that's content to monetize. Was it the idea that YouTube was favoring them, or was it the idea that YouTube just shouldn't have them there? It has nothing to do with the fact that people like you and I were watching the videos. It had everything to do with the fact that Tide 
didn't want to advertise okay, okay. on I, I get, an alt-right video. And yeah. Well, that that's interesting in and of itself because that's a whole other subject where the culture of the people running these companies seems to be widely differentiated from this massive population who might be interested in buying certain things. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Well, it all goes back to like they're not – so Facebook, when they're starting – they're hiring up – tens of thousands of people in third world countries to regulate what mm -hmm. people post on Facebook. And this is not for me and you. Yeah. This is not for, because if you post a super offensive thing on Facebook, I'll just unfriend you. Yeah. Like that already was built into the framework. This is so that you don't think you that post something on Facebook that I, that Tide or Chevrolet but, 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 but you don't think won't that, see it next to one of their ads. But do you think Tide and Chevrolet Companies are risk averse. Do you think that it's just they don't want some sort of story about how they're associated with something bad, and then that's that's just a story? And Correct. If you, if you don't, if you could prevent that story, all things being equal, there is one YouTube channel that you can advertise with where that story won't happen, and there's a YouTube channel that might happen with. So that's that that's just too much of a risk if you're tied. And for whatever reason, companies are just they're, they're afraid of that kind of thing, and. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that could be it. So the problem is that YouTube, all these open platforms can't guarantee that something somebody uploads isn't offensive. Yeah. And so therefore they can't guarantee to an advertiser that their ad won't be next to something that's offensive unless they start heavily policing using algorithms, speech and things that are put up on those platforms. So suddenly what's happening is that, and you know, look, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I hate Nazis and I don't think Nazis should be making videos and putting them on YouTube. And I certainly don't think the algorithm should be favoring them, but you can't be both an open platform and an ad supported platform. I just like the idea that, that you'd be making the argument that the, the algorithm should explicitly favor Nazis. Well, on, you know what, but the fact, but you know what, dude, I think Nazi.com, man, if you run Nazi.com, your algorithm should definitely favor Nazi content. That's what you are. Nobody had problems with Stormfront when it was just a shitty looking website. Mm. I remember, I, did, I feel like, I, do you remember Jewwatch.com? Um, I remember references to Jewwatch.com. I remember like I remember finding when I was a kid Jewwatch.com and being so befuddled by it. Being like, I didn't know if it was a joke. I didn't know if it was real. What did it mean for well, Jewwatch? Well, I think, oh, this is a whole other tangent, but I think that there is a cohort of non-Jewish people who get blown away that there is almost this secret, that, that, that they see a bunch of white people and some of them have this secret attachment that they didn't know about and they, they like knowing who's who. I mean, to me and to you, I think it just comes naturally a little bit that we tend to know who's Jewish in, you know, in media and whatnot. I think mm -hmm. for other people who are a little more removed and not Jewish. <laughs> they need Jewwatch.com to it. tell them. They can't just figure it <laughs> well, out. That, right, I guess, but that's not what Jewwatch.com I feel like Christoph <laughs> Waltz and Inglorious <laughs> Bastards were like, mm, yes, I, I know who's a Jew. Yudin or no Yudin? <laughs> I know who's a Yudin is. Yeah, but like, but Jewwatch.com, it was just a an aggregate. It was just a collection of links to anti-Semitic sites. And nobody gave a shit about it because it was a shitty looking website that had mm -hmm. no influence. Yeah. But once you get rid of, inf once you get rid of websites, these institutions that people can run 
everyone separately on an open platform. That's what the internet was. And then now the only place that they can exist is by, on by these the centralized way, internets. What, what, yeah, you're going to get fucking Nazis on Facebook. By the Facebook. way, when, when we're all done with this, I have to play a clip for you of, and I won't tell who it is, an NBA player telling me his theory and what he's read on why Jews are overrated. <laughs> on why they're overrated? Yes. <laughs> this is... <laughs> Can you imagine like the Hitler speech, but like seeing like the, the like what it's translated to in the bottom? Yeah, Just, Jews are overrated. It's like a sports They're show. Overrated. It's a very sports way of talking <laughs> about anti-Semitism. Next on around the what is it around the horn? Yeah, like, yeah. I'm like thing like Jews overrated, underrated. O- overrated, underrated. Wait, he thought his the extent of his anti-Jewish conspiracy and, and, and the way was that do they're it, overrated. The way you do it in sports, the way Skip Bayless would do it, he often has a little turn where he thought one thing and then he saw this game and now he thinks the Cowboys are going to win. The he does <laughs> like I used to think that Jews were overrated, but then I found out. <laughs> that Jonas Salt cured polio, and now I think they're underrated. And then the crowd cheers. <laughs> they're underrated because a Jew killed polio. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. Salk, I, I wasn't sure. Jewwatch.com wasn't around, so I couldn't check. Yeah. Is Salk a Jew or not? <laughs> yeah, you couldn't check it. Couldn't find out. I mean, the fucking pro- it's just like so dumb. We're, like, all these companies, all they're doing is they're just trying to fit all things into a machine mm-hmm. and the problem is that people are like filled with edge cases that are interesting and like why even bother doing this like it, it was fine like we were able to use technology in harmony with human <laughs> labor to make cool shit and now we've gone st- way too far where now we have to get people addicted to platforms in order to keep them on them mm-hmm. we have to run these narcissism casinos in order to keep people engaged with platforms where like the only like the thing about twitter why we're also engaged that is, is because it's podcast it, name right there narcissism. a narcissism casino <laughs> yeah but you were saying uh, but like the, the the allure of twitter is that at any moment anyone on Twitter could tweet the n-word and ruin their lives like you and I have <laughs> well, the power we're holding a gun do, do you think especially for teenagers do you think the popularity of a medium is proportional to the ease with which you could accidentally ruin your career the ease of which you could send a nude yeah the, the ease with which, no but I'm thinking something else like there's a little bit of it when they tried to sell cigarettes when they found out it was dangerous that you should have a little bit of a death wish maybe that they want to uh, yeah we love was, that kind of shit we love playing on the edge you know is this is this the reputational motor cycle riding yeah but the thing is is like we're all acting like we can handle this shit the big lie is that we can handle social media everyone's like yeah yeah look i know twitter's bad for most people but like i'm fine mm-hmm. yeah look facebook i get it but i don't click on the ads you know that shit doesn't work on me russian propaganda yeah i can see through that shit <laughs> and the, the fact this, is this no you fe- fucking can't this already feels like an anti-drug commercial Sorry, <laughs> russian propaganda no problem doesn't impact me at all and then he marches away <laughs> Oh, really? Well, that was some like thing was like 80% of people said there was a poll. 80% of people said that they could tell the difference. And then like you test them and like they can't or, you know, because like we didn't even, man, the whole Russian propaganda thing, too. It's like going back to that original New York Times thing. Uh What's important is that people don't even understand what it means when they say that like Facebook took ads out. Sorry. 
the New York Times took ads out on Facebook, it doesn't mean they put a banner ad. It doesn't mean, it means if you are the New York Times and you run and you post your shit on Facebook and Facebook, this is what they want. They want you to have, they want publications to be on Facebook, updating their articles, uh, and, and you know putting them out there but what they do is they restrict access so even if you are a subscriber on Facebook to the New York Times you would not have seen the post that whether it was the one saying like how to break up with Facebook or just one about like what Trump did yesterday hmm. you wouldn't see that post unless the New York Times paid for you to see it because that's how Facebook works is if you are a publisher on Facebook the only way that the people who follow you will see your content is if you put money behind it that's mm -hmm. the business model and you can understand from their perspective it's like well yeah because we're replacing the New York Times doesn't have to pay money to for that article to go to the printer and mm -hmm. for a paper boy to deliver it to you we're the infrastructure and so you should pay for access to our infrastructure yeah it just sucks man the thing is it just fucking sucks Facebook just fucking sucks. Twitter fucking sucks. Like, you can't even get shit done unless you delete this shit off your fucking phone. Oh, yeah. It's useless. I'm going to maybe delete all of it and I can, I can, we would be all faster feel so much better if we just deleted all of it. But here, but this is, but you can, how, how you can tell that it's fucked is that, so in this era where web series are making the jump to television, right? That's over. But now you see podcasts are making the jump to television, right? Like Homecoming made the jump, Jesus and Marrow. Like, mm. and, and why that is is because podcasts are still an open platform. It's still a somewhat like al not algorithmically based platform where things where it's oversaturated, but still cool things yeah. emerge from it. I don't, it. you know and what? You can I, do I, something different, and people will notice. Because we're doing a podcast right now, I get annoyed when people make little snide remarks about it, every, how everybody has a podcast. I think it's cool that everybody has a podcast. Also, you fucking need a podcast. It's, it's like a fucking website. It's like the only way that you can have something that isn't censored by an algorithm or controlled by a fucking multi-billion corporation that doesn't have your interests in mind is to just make a podcast. I think it's great. all we have. If, if all of a sudden everybody was had watercolors they were painting with, it I think that would great. be wonderful. I sometimes, I've done a podcast with my wife and I've thought... How cool that my grandchildren potentially could listen to this in the future and get a little slice of life from back in that. That's back how in. I feel about my podcast with Ted, my brother. I may, I do a top ten every it, year. That's with my an brother amazing Ted. podcast, by the way. And well, thank you. And well, it's but it's like a it's like we can do whatever we want, and it's for posterity. I, 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 yeah. Anyway, so yes, but you were making the point that podcasts are succeeding and fulfilling people. There is more enthusiasm for podcasts if we talk about the art ennui. Uh, the art nadir currently. Podcasts are a bright spot. People like them. Yes, they're distracting, but people ultimately think more highly of them and the role that these things play in their lives than the other stuff are referencing. Right, because it's still an open platform and it's using technology to fucking do it. It's like, it, like it's not that hard to see that if you... All algorithms are is it's just a method of control. Mm -hmm. It's just the reason why Twitter... Why... Everyone bitches about Instagram not being chronological anymore. And they're like, why can't it just be chronological anymore? And it's because if they make it chronological, they no longer have control over your feed. They no longer can insert the things that they need to go into your feed into your feed. 
Same thing with Twitter. Like they need to be able to put something in your feed and have it be prominently displayed because they promised somebody that if they gave them money, if Shell Oil gave them this amount of money, that this number of people were going to see that ad. And the only way to do that is if they have complete control over what they can insert into your feed. And they claim that the algorithm helps sort out what you actually want to see, but that's not fucking true. And you know that's not true because your feed is not filled with the things that you're interested in. No. It like changes all the time. It's often filled with just the most annoying people on the platform yeah it's uh, the well that's a whole other issue is this it's not a dunning-kruger effect where the people who are dumbest are the people who are least aware of how dumb they are which is an internet cliche by now but it's there is something to the people who tend to speak up tend to be the most annoying people when you interface with these platforms and there is a cost to that and it can even be divorced from ideology it is attitudinal i know that my wife Ali interfaces with Facebook not as much just because she doesn't want to hear from the people inundating her feed with anxiety with mm. just a torrent of anxiety because that's what it's there I like I'm a, I, I the only time I tweet generally because I don't tweet jokes mm-hmm. I'm a fucking comedian I barely tweet jokes because I can't stomach giving away like my work for free to this like stupid fucking company but the only time that I feel okay tweeting is when I'm incensed enough by what I've read that I like have some like hot take and angry take mm. on what's going on in social media well, so somebody following you on on Twitter with think that all you ever do is get mad about Facebook. And in this case, they would actually be correct. They're completely correct. The only thing that I do on social media is tweet about how I hate Facebook and other yeah. social media. Because that's the, it feels like that's the correct outlet for it. That's mm-hmm. what's fucked up is it's like I get outlet. so mad and I need to outlet. Outlet's pretty good. Yeah, it's a yeah. little double entendre yeah, right outlet, there. Yeah. Um, uh, but it, it, which is dumb, but you could, but I'm not the only person that does this. Like everyone tweets what they are like feeling and that's what it feels like that this magazine that we all write for I've, is. I, for me, the way I use the medium now, I just retweet compliments of my work. I don't interface with any negativity. Yeah, single you've, you've got it dialed in. This well, because I realize, I look at this thing, it's a narcissism casino. Okay. Then I'm doing narcissism. Great. That's what it's fucking there for. Yeah, and that's it's what for, it's optimized for. It, it's, it's for, for the narcissism. It's, always, it's only good for promotion. Yeah. It's not, I, I in the past, I would have liked to have raised some sort of um, contrarian point that I was secretly feeling when I saw a consensus emerge that I thought was somewhat foolish or wasn't giving uh, full thought to a different perspective. But I came to realize that no, uh, this is not the place for that. It makes doing that a miserable experience. It is a place for self-promotion. It is a very shallow place, so I should use it for a shallow method. Also, so, like it, it like ruins your day. Like if yeah. you tweet something, even that like gets engagement, it ruins your fucking day because you're like, oh, this tweet's doing really well, and you're just constantly. At least me, man, I constantly I will like check in. Well, on if it. you want to go with, to a darker place, I think Instagram to me might be a little more insidious and in a way that I might not have thought about till I had a kid because now there's just something so jarring about posting a picture of prime rib and then posting a picture of your your baby son and seeing the prime rib get so much more affirmation and seeing the <laughs> statistics connect 
with the dopamine in that there way. was some like instagram mommy blogger and like she got shit for this but like i like get like she's just playing by the fucking rules here she's like a mommy blogger and she noticed that one of her kids got way less engagement than the rest of them yeah and she posted like a kind of a way of being like guys please make sure you also like this other kid because i don't want to have to explain how am i going to explain to him later on in life that he got less engagement than his peers that'll hurt his self-esteem and it's like she's not wrong that's how the system that's a is little, put in place that's a little too uh that's a little too open about it, it, it is it's, it's much those... too open the whole thing is crazy and sad but you can understand why she felt that way it's like a, those it, are it, the incentives and rewards that are put in place it's like a new age version of Violet waldman saying that she loved her uh, husband michael chabon more than than their kids and writing a, <laughs> a new york times article about oh, yeah, it where right. maybe you feel that way and maybe there's a value in confessing it but they're going to know about that later on um or it's maybe just a new age version of those animals where siblings are born and one kills the other and that that proves fitness. It oh, and this the, is good. Well, but this is what they want you to believe. And by the way, I feel like when China goes to a, a from a one child policy, I could completely see it getting done in this particular way. Um, oh, where it's based on engagement. Yeah, where it's based based on engagement. Well, this, like this, this tells you everything you need to know that like China. God, man, did you see that that clip that went around? Like New York Times did a whole thing on on China and like how we were wrong about China and we thought they were going to fail. And one of the, the clips about it was of Bill Clinton talking about in like 1998 or 99 or whatever how China's trying to regulate the internet. Mm. And Bill Clinton, famously, they're not they're not going to do it. And just thinking that that China was almost naive to think. <laughs> well, that he was get. like, they're trying to regulate the internet now. He was basically it was like a monologue joke. He's like, yeah, they're trying to regulate the internet now. Good luck with that. It's like trying to nail Jello to a wall, mm. and like the whole crowd erupts in laughter. And it was like, yeah, it's insane to try to regulate the internet. No, man, all you got to do is centralize the whole thing and just hire a bunch of censors. Yeah, and that's what China has done. They now have a completely regulated internet, and this is and so that but there's this government regulated we're doing the same exact thing I, I here like how we but it's a capitalism regu- it's a company regulated internet where it's centralized with a few companies and the only things you can say are the things that are approved by advertisers I, 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 the clintonian perspective is such a 1990s perspective of believing the internet to be almost an organic force of nature yeah. that could not be it could not be wrangled in any way as opposed to something way. as opposed to something that's man-made um, and so, it but can't. there, but it was, but it, the thing was, is it was still an open platform where you could make things, and mm. there were still like Google was putting restrictions on what could be monetized and what like search would pick up, and like slowly over time, it went from being this open utopian space. Okay to being just heavily restricted and creatively devoid. And that's where we're at now. Okay, that's so the nutritionless internet that we have. To bring it back to the topic earlier, eh, a little obliquely, let's say the New York Times decides that Google is just as nefarious as Facebook. Yeah. Do they go after Google in the way they've gone after Facebook? I don't think they do. I think Google actually scares them because they're too powerful i think google's more powerful than it's facebook. fair they have been doing a lot of, but it, it facebook feels like a tangible target one because they're weak two because everybody hates them but also it has it is the bigger threat to new york times this is where new york times isn't wrong Faith, like where facebook isn't wrong new york times is going after facebook because they've deemed facebook to be bad for the new york times mm. but the new york times is just standing up for itself why are they expected to be a well, neutral Google, party it would be like expecting them to be a neutral party if like someone was going into the new york times office and shooting new york times people <laughs> in the head and then you'd be like well, well, well I, I don't understand in, in, the new york times has a very distinctly anti the new york times gunman bias yeah but then that 
that makes a liar of the New York Times in a way because yes, I think you're right. The New York Times has an obvious incentive to go after Google, but they'll never not Google go after Facebook, but they'll never admit it. So then it, it creates a situation where they almost have to be dishonest. And I find that companies do act in this way of unacknowledged biases leading. Them I don't, astray. but I don't think they I haven't admitted say, it. I don't think they haven't admitted it. I think the New York Times has been. I, I they just said that they're up. at the nexus of certain stories. They, the New York Times never says we're going after Facebook because it's our business competitor. You fucking idiot! What do you think that this is? What, what do you think this is a charity over here? Are you fucking naive? You, you, <laughs> the fuck do you think? Well, like Murdoch, like fucking Murdoch was like very bald about this, but. Uh, and I mean, I've and here, if I were to I've... level a criticism at Murdoch that I think would actually harm him, mm. I think that him bailing out of the news oh, business. Yeah. I'm Rupert Murdoch. Oh, <laughs> Murdoch's just bailing out of the news business because he's too afraid to take on Zuckerberg. He's running away from a fight, the pansy. Come on, Murdoch. <laughs> well, I, but like. I, I feel it, like the business side of the New York... I mean, I don't know. It's like, does the New York Times have an anti-Trump bias, or are they just, like, covering Trump for what he is? Well, that's a whole other thing that we don't want to talk about. Because part of their bias podcast. is talking about Trump because that gets the most engagement. Wait, because of Facebook. Because Trump, of, the, the, whole, <laughs> this is the, the end all be all of that is that we have, like, the, the only counter-argument that anyone can give me of why everything feels like shit right now, other than the internet sucks, is that it's actually Trump. And Trump is ruining everything. Every mushroom trip is about Trump. Every fucking conversation is about Trump. Every time you fuck, you can't help but think about Trump. And like, yeah, that's absolutely true. And yet, but social media gave us Trump. I feel like that is undisputable. And, yeah. and so did regular media. So did regular media. But I think social media is the culprit. Well, that's just such a big... That's such a big statement. Social media gave us Trump because social media is a part of how we communicate all the time and you could just come at that supposition from so many different directions email didn't give us trump well some but some would argue (laughs) some would argue and you would not i believe endorse this argument but some would say yes social media gave us trump do you know why it gave us trump because it enabled a level of groupthink from people who believe themselves are moral betters to have full monopoly on the conversation and then created this populist surge that Google, for instance, is run by people of a very specific worldview that they don't want to allow the other view. They don't say that the other view is legitimate. And this is what caused Trump to rise. Now, I'm not saying that is what happened or is what not happened. I'm merely making the point that they are so influential that it's almost hard to disentangle where one aspect of their influence ends and the other begins. You mean media, mainstream yeah. media. Well, I'm, I'm saying social media. I'm saying social face- media. And I'm well, saying Facebook. Sure. Well, so I think that, yeah, the way that I interpreted what you said was more that like mainstream media, right, was against Trump, all this stuff. but And so people, there was a populist uprising against whatever that media is. And people believing that mainstream media had a lockdown on no, all I'm, things that were said. No, I'm and saying people that, ran to social media in order to have this populist dissenting opinion. No, I, I, I'm more saying that certain opinions were more popular than they were fashionable. And there were certain outlets that preferred certain more fashionable opinions. If you live in cosmopolitan America uh, as the people who design the internet as we're talking about do, you have certain preferences, certain ways of thinking are gauche, certain ways of thinking are correct. You're, what, what is it said at, at Facebook that they want to make the world more open and connected, right? That That is a slogan, mm-hmm. and there is certainly something nice about being more open and connected. Everyone loves being open and connected. Well, not everybody does. There are people who don't. <laughs> 
There are people who don't love being more open and oh, connected. Right, oh, right, right, right. You know, there are... <laughs> right, right. forgot about no, them. Forgot, forgot. Yeah, they live, they live over there, oh, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. There's not, everybody shouldn't be one fucking thing. Right, 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 right. <laughs> So um, what I'm saying is that the cultural norms of uh, certain institutions and certain... It, it got a little more... Uh, a, a quick consensus formed. And so I think... Some would argue that the Trumpy backlash originates from that, and that's that's part of the story as well. I'm citing that as a plausible theory, but saying that this Trump rise was probably multifactorial and or multifactorial, and uh, it, it's just so hard to say this is why this happened because there are so many aspects to the influence of social mediaizing the world. Yes. And also there's a bajillion factors that got him elected. But yeah. I think that like, if you look at like, I don't know, it's just, it was so crazy that he, he had so much momentum behind him. And I think so many of the things that I, I believe that the Russian influence on social media you do. was tapping into something. I don't think it was the only factor, but in a race that was this close, like any one factor could have been the deciding yeah. factor. But I think and, for, and, and for I would... the most part, the way that conservatives wielded social media and algorithmically driven media mm -hmm. led to them having the upper hand compared to so I like for example like in the days leading up to the election all the momentum was coming from like you know basically it was the the the, the 4chan to Fox News pipeline mm -hmm. where like 4chan would pit would like you know, dig through the Podesta emails, it's like turning them into memes, put it on Reddit that that would get leaked onto Facebook that would then uh, that would leak onto Fox News and that would drive the news cycle. But at every like so but a conservative would see this at many different touch points, not necessarily all of them, but you would interact so, with this so at you're various touch points. So you're perceiving this as you have effectively, um, as some would say, a Russian cutout in WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks would divulge some information because they wanted to perhaps help Trump uh, because perhaps that's what Russia wanted. And then that would be sifted through at 4chan and then that would move up the chain into mass media. Is that what you are? Yeah. And at various points, Russian like these were both like Trump, Trump conservatives and Russia, IR, you know, Internet Research Agency employees like taking memes, putting them places, but like giving them this bots, giving this momentum like you can feel it. And I think like, I, you know, my question would be if you for example, uh, a lot of the momentum for Hillary le leading up to the election was in a Facebook group called Pantsuit Nation. Mm -hmm. Right. Like a ton. I remember just like so many of my female friends talking about this awesome private Facebook group where there was all this momentum for Hillary. And it's like you have taken all the, the like the, the momentum machine and you've bottled it up and made it private. Mm -hmm. So none of that momentum was yeah, leaking out because, and getting into because anyone I'm else. I'm looking at you like a crazy person right now. Just that to me, I don't know if you live in a bubble or if I live in a bubble because I don't know. I don't know people who were talking about this. About Pantsuit Nation? I heard a reference to Pantsuit Nation because we're both in this sort of media milieu where somebody might mention it. But nobody in my Bay Area real life, not not my wife, was ever talking about, oh, did you hear about Pantsuit Nation? Um, it's also just a ridiculous name. Hey, don't besmirch Pantsuit Nation. You do not want Pantsuit Nation going after you. It just doesn't seem like something that's about uh, what the voting public might want. It's well, but it – because – well, whatever. But it – well, it was – 
a small like it, it was an institution it was like a created space for an express purpose which is for women oh, to communicate with each other their enthusiasm for hillary clinton and normally when something like that happens that influence is then able to like spread and affect the wider world but in this case it was bottled up whereas all of the like the equivalent pantsuit nations for trump were fucking publicly available spinning out viral content that kept the momentum and the trump train moving and you think that was just all but why was that? Why was that differentiation in how the internet was used? I I I, I wonder. I think some of it's unlucky. It was like people and all, but or not. I mean, it was by design. Women wanted pantsuit nation as a space because when they were trying, women are notoriously, and this is like backed up by studies. I can't like, wait for how the sentence ends. Are no are are, <laughs> are targets on social media. Right, men weaponize social media mm, against women. There are other studies that say that's not the case. I mean, I've seen is that, that true. Dispute. Yes. What I've study? Seen, what study disputes I don't, this? I, I've seen it argued between pundits. I, that it is a subjective claim to say more target versus less target, and some of it is in the subject. All I know is that it's very clear to me that mm-hmm. women I know who are like higher profile when they post anything, mm-hmm. they get. Ex- all manner of responses, but like on the whole, things that are but very like how negative. This, and but gross. how does this tie into the pantsuit nation? Because theory? that's why they chose to have a private Facebook group. Oh. Because they needed to be protected from crazy men, like either like calling them cunts, Tucker Carlsoning them, or uh, you know even if they liked them, like dissect, you know, show me your feet or whatever. This was like show me your feet, show me your feet. Like this is like constantly what women get online, like high profile women. This is, you know, this is like established. Is that is that you coming up with just a, a non filthy, filthy comment? Show me your feet. No, this is the comment. Like, talk to any woman online that posts things online, and they'll get like, you know, just like reams of show me your feet mm-hmm. <laughs> from like fucking pervy dudes that don't care and uh-huh. are down to like, you know. It, the whole system of this is weighed against various people and various like groups, sometimes because of happenstance and sometimes because of established norms and all sorts of other things. But the point is that none of it is fair and equal. None of it means that the best ideas rise to the top. None of it means mm. that like the best performers or writers or whatever are the ones that succeed. Instead, it's all just generating, you know, fucking like fluff for the most part. So there's a Pew poll that say men are slightly more likely to be harassed than, than women or a Pew study. Who knows? What is it? What does the study say? Uh, a new Pew research survey finds that harassment, uh, harassment is a more common feature of online life for many adults. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Um, I would have to go through the whole Pew research center all right, um, we'll come back to this with the actual studies. Yeah, I don't, I don't. Because this know. is an interesting conversation, but there's no point in us. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. About I mean, okay. It says uh, this is on PewResearch.org. Men are somewhat more likely than women to be harassed online, forty-four percent versus thirty-seven percent. But women, particularly younger women, are more likely to be the targets of sexual harassment online. I think this is where the devil is in the details. Yeah, because I wonder how they categorize harassment. Ain't nobody telling me to show them show them their feet, right? That, that has, but also, like, how do you categorize harassment? Because it could just be somebody arguing against you online, mm-hmm. or you know, whatever. Versus, I don't know. What, I know. I know people. I know people who say that they are being harassed. Um, men who say that, and I just look at 
the interactions they're having and think, well, it's just somebody criticizing you. Right. And also you are engaging in this and thus training your followers to engage to with do you this, this way. Yeah. Well, this if is you were other, like yeah. me and buy my DVD this for nineteen ninety nine. You gotta take the Ethan course. The Ethan course teaches you how to be on social you media. T- you take that compliment, yeah. you retweet that compliment, you take that criticism, you mute that criticism, mm-hmm. you keep it moving. This is it. This is how to handle it. Success. Ethan teaches you in easy to understand terms and step-by-step instructions how to handle social media and I can't tell you my life has changed dramatically and for an extra $3.99 you'll get my music video of a 1980s rap that reasserts uh, the message and let's uh, play that right now <laughs> I'm Ethan and I'm here to say we got to use social media the correct way when you're on don't retweet Every, got no rhyme for retweet. Got no rhyme for retweet. Okay, well, Matt, yeah. I must say, I had a lot of fun talking with you, man. Yeah, this you is do. this is good. Yeah. This is good. This is cathartic. Yeah. Um, I feel I feel purged. I feel <laughs> purged, purged of my demons. Yeah, yeah <laughs> my yeah, my yeah, purging demons podcast. My, my, my manifold demons it was so great to uh, it was so great to purge them and look i'm not quite sure what we're doing here but i'm having a lot of fun doing it i think that there's a value to us having different perspectives uh from different parts of the media sphere and hopefully we can restore some sanity to ourselves if not to others matt that's the goal <laughs> That's the goal is to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, this, I think, yeah, this will just be conversations and we're just going to try and take the best parts of those conversations and put them out and sort of see what this turns into. I'm sorry. That's too, too, too small, too small a claim. We are here, folks, to validate your sanity. That is what we're here to do. Validate your sanity and to save society. That's, those are the goals of the syncing up podcast. That's what we say whenever we toast. That's what we say. (laughs) I mean, to validate your sanity. And to save society. Uh, all right. Thank you so much for and we, and then we And then we drink the poison. Oh, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. This is what we say before we drink. All right. You ready to drink your poison, Ethan? Uh, yeah, let's thanks, do it. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. We're going to drink our poison. I hope you do, too. We'll catch you guys on the next one. <laughs> to validate your sanity and, and to, to save, save soci- society. <laughs> I kill myself. <laughs>